Good morning again, brethren. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. As Peter has just read, we're going to be in the second, second excuse me, chapter of the book of James. And as we have been making our way through the book of James, we've seen that, that James is very confrontational. He doesn't pull any punches. He desires that all believers live out their faith. He wants to see more than just simple verbal assent to a set of beliefs. He wants to see a faith that is lived out in your daily lives, and he pulls no punches. We've dealt with trials and the purpose of trials and wisdom in trials, and what we've dealt with the fact that if we respond poorly in trials, it comes from the sin in our own hearts and not from God. Because God is good. We, we've seen how James has challenged us to receive the Word, to obey the Word, to be a doer of the Word. And even if we live out the Word, we're to be a genuine doer. And that genuine doer, or being a genuine doer, is demonstrated as we love others and we hate sin. Well, James brings us to a new section, or we're coming to a new section in chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning, but the larger section, verses 1 through 13, deal with the sin of favoritism or partiality or discrimination. Those words are all synonymous, and I will use those interchangeably this morning. And so James is bringing us to this section where he he condemns, he admonishes, and he exhorts these believers to live a life of impartiality in their dealings with others. See, James has already pointed out that if you're a genuine doer, you'll have a love for others. Well, he he wants to see that, that love for others demonstrated in our attitudes towards one another. The inward heart is the key to outward worship. The inward belief lived out in outward faith. When I was in uni, I visited a church one Sunday morning service, and I sat down, and the church filled up with worshipers, and the the pastor got up, and he did his morning announcements, and then he offered a welcome. And and then after the welcome, he, he pointed out in the back, he said, I'd like to welcome the mayor of our small town. And everyone turned and looked at the mayor, mayor and then they, uh, they, they spontaneously began a round of applause. And I, I just kind of shook my head and I said, you know, applause, really? And have they not read James chapter 2? And what we're going to be talking about this morning is, is that sin of favoritism, of, of partiality, of treating others differently than someone else merely by external and superficial features. Because this is a sin that sneaks up on us. It sneaks up on us as believers. Because you think about it, we've made judgments and decisions, and we've looked at people all our lives, especially pre-salvation, a certain way. We even lump people together in groups. We say, so-and-so is this way because of this reason. Or we look at a person and say, they must be like this because they look this way. And we have these categories. The world has these categories. There's, there's financial categories. There's uh, degrees or knowledge categories we look at people. There's athletic ability. There's personality. There's social status, ethnicity. 
Well, see, these are the way that unbelievers look at each other. They evaluate each other. And this is a worldly and and a superficial attitude. And the danger for us as Christians is that we, we haven't dealt with this aspect in our lives, that we still hold to this, this worldly, sinful view of others. And it, it permeates and it, and it infiltrates the church itself. And so James is warning to, to fight against this favoritism, to fight against this partiality within the church before it becomes norm. So James pulls no punches, as we're going to see, and he condemns this sin in verses 1 through 13. But today we're going to look at specifically verses 1 through 4, and we're going to be dealing with the incompatible error of favoritism. We're going to be dealing with the vivid example of favoritism and the correct evaluation of favoritism. So let's go ahead and read the text, and then we will dig in. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in this good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down By my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? So James begins this section with the principle laid out in verse 1 of chapter 2. And he says, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. So he talks about your faith, and, and literally it's the faith that you believe. The inward doctrines that you hold about Jesus Christ, His personhood as the Son of God, the nature of who He is, and His work and His sacrifice on the cross. It's the faith. It's the fundamentals that that you believe in. And I love the way that James, he, he brings himself into this. He says, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's a pastor. And you can see that when he says, my brethren... He's addressing these believers and he's coming alongside them and he says, don't hold your faith in partiality towards others. It's it's our Lord. He draws himself into them. It's his faith just as much as it is their, their faith. It's our faith. And he says, look, our glorious. And I love these descriptions because he's, he's drawing out a picture of Jesus Christ because when you have the right understanding of Jesus Christ, you will have the right understanding and the right attitude towards others. And he draws that out and he says, the glorious Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the glorious is, a, is like we were, Peter was saying earlier, excuse me, in Psalm 24, the, the Lord of glory, His radiance, His splendor. We're talking about His, uh, his Shekinah glory that, that one can not look at because of its radiance and splendor, its beauty. He deserves our honor. He deserves our worship. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we get a picture of Jesus Christ in His radiance, in His his glorious picture. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one, like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like wool and like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. And his feet were burnished bronze, and which had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last, I am the living one, the one who is dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades." So we see a picture of of Jesus Christ in all His glorious splendor. And you think about His name. Now, this is only the second instance in all of the book of James where where James mentions Jesus Christ. And not only does he just, he doesn't just say Jesus Christ, he says the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, before he deals with the sin of partiality, he wants their focus to be on Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of their faith. Though he's, Jesus Christ is, is their Lord, is our Lord. We, we submit to Him. Colossians chapter 3 says that we are slaves and He is the Master. Jesus, His name, Jesus means Savior. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are, we are forgiven of our sins through His sacrifice on the cross. And He's the Christ. He's the, the long-promised Messiah. The one who will return, the coming one that will reign forever. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember camping in the backyard with my friends when I was about 10 years old. We wanted to do a camp out. We wanted to watch the meteor shower that we knew was coming. We wanted to do some stargazing. And we set everything up and we were ready to go. And we had the tent and, and we had the top so you could kind of see out the top. And, and we were just waiting and we're having a good time. And, and then uh, all of a sudden we realized that the moon, as it rose above the trees, was a bright, full moon. And with the moon being that full and that bright and that radiant, it, it overpowered the light from the, the stars surrounding it and, and it made the meteors hard to see. Well, the the glorious Lord Jesus Christ should be the overarching and overriding, overpowering focus in our lives. His radiance should should help us to keep ourselves in the right perspective when we're dealing with others, whether it's the rich, whether it's the, the prominent, whether it's the poor. We should remember Christ and His glory when we think about the glory of man. This proper view of Jesus Christ will help us to keep a proper view of others. Now, a reason I say that, a reason I'm sorry, titled this section, The Incompatible Error of Favoritism, is that favoritism or partiality is, is incompatible with the nature of God. God is impartial judge. God is impartial in His judgment. All mankind is guilty. All mankind is sinned against God. All mankind is under His wrath apart from Jesus Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles, apart from Christ, face the same judgment. Romans 2, 11 and 12, For there is no partiality with God. 
For all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see, God is impartial in His judgment. He's impartial in His salvation. All members of the body of Christ were, were all essential workers. We're all necessary. We're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit equally. There's no special baptism where some believers have, have, are more special than others. We've all been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the same equal power available to us, the same strength. We're in union with Christ. Colossians chapter 3, we have new identities. You're no longer Indian or Aborigine or American or Aussie. You're in Christ. That's your identity is. We all will experience the same glories of heaven and get to enjoy the presence of our Lord forever. So God is, is, is impartial in His judgment and He's impartial in His salvation. We have an inheritance, brethren. God is good and His, His righteous judgment is good. His righteous and loving salvation is good. God is not evil. There's, there's no impartiality with Him. And so when you think, and this is James' point, as we'll get into, when you think about showing favoritism and showing partiality and, and being discriminatory within the body of Christ, it is inconsistent with the nature of God and how He's treated you specifically. So James says, look, brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. That word favoritism is, is making a judgment based on superficial considerations. It's focusing in on the externals. You, you dislike a person because of what you, what you see or what you hear, what they're wearing. You group people together and you make judgments of that person based on the group you associate them with. How often do we do that? Oh, this person is like this because they're what? You add ethnic group here, right? It's a worldly thinking. Like, it's funny because our world likes to decry discrimination. But when you really dig down into it, there's only certain, there are certain groups that you're allowed to discriminate, and in certain groups you are not. It's inconsistent in its application. It's not that they decry discrimination, they only decry discrimination against certain protected groups. But the reality is, even though publicly people would say, oh, I don't, I don't discriminate, in reality, privately they do. And they do because they're sinners. And it's in our nature. It's pride. We think we're better than others. We think we can evaluate others. And we put others in groups. Because it's easy to dislike a group than it is to dislike an individual. We break people into, into, into smaller groups and, and we, we look at them and we, we judge them based on the actions of that group as a whole. It's partiality. It's favoritism. But the world looks at clothes and wealth and status and fame and personality and possessions. All these things, when you look at a person and you, and you think you know them based on those superficial aspects, that's the sin of partiality. It's the sin of favoritism. You're discriminatory. Well, it's a sin, and that's, we find out later on in, in verses uh, 8 and 9 of this chapter that says that this is a sin. It's an insult to Christ. 
Because you think about it, Christ didn't show favoritism. Here he was, a Jewish teacher, and what? He, he accepted wealthy Jewish Pharisee and Nicodemus. He met the, the Samaritan woman at the well. Matthew was a tax collector, and he's written a gospel. He's accepted lepers and blind, a criminal on the cross, and he even spoke the truth to a Roman governor. He treated everyone with impartiality. So it's an insult. You know, God even had to remind Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 16, as Samuel is looking to anoint the next king of Israel, he comes to each one of David's brothers, sons of Jesse, and and he looks and, and he says, oh, it has to be this one. But God rebukes Samuel in verse 7 of chapter 16. He says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it's an insult to Christ, but it's also pride. Like I said earlier, you think you're better than others. You think you have the right to, to judge them and put them in groups or reject what they say because, or because you don't like the way they look. You, as James gives us a specific example, as we'll deal with in just a moment, a poor man, you look at that poor man and you compare him to yourself and you're better than him. You see how subtle that is? We group people. We, it comes to us naturally as men and women in this world. We put people in different groups. We discriminate. And James wants to to just nip that in the bud. He wants to confront it now. Because we're not better than anybody else. There's an old saying that we're, we're just beggars. Telling other beggars where to find food. We're all dead in our trespasses and sin. And it wouldn't be for God's grace in our lives, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sin. So you've got God's standards. And not only is a favoritism a sin, but personal favoritism is a, is a denial and a rejection of God's standard. God's standard doesn't change. He always deals with the heart. He looks past those external qualities in people. And as James has spoke about in James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he says, A, a genuine doer loves others more than he loves himself. Well, God treats you impartially, you should treat others impartially. And this is the general principle. And I wanted to hit this very hard because this general principle in verse 1 will govern the entire rest of this section, all the way to verse 13. It will all point back to this general principle. God is impartial and partiality is incompatible with your Christian faith. If you say you're a Christian and you treat others discriminatory and you you show partiality and favoritism, then are you really living out the Christian faith? And that's James's point. If you hold to faith in Christ, love others the way Christ loved them. So we have an incompatible era of favoritism, and then we have a vivid example of favoritism. Look down at verse 2 and 3. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and there comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you sit 
say to the poor man, oh, you stand over there or you sit down by my footstool. So you have a test for these, these churches that James is writing to. Excuse me. It's the test of visitors. You want to see where your heart is. How do you respond to visitors to the church? Because in those early assemblies, 1 Corinthians 14 and 23, 25, you can read how those assemblies were open to the public. Paul says, if a man comes into your church, and in that chapter he's talking about order and how things should look. Well, if a, if a person comes in, a visitor comes in, this is, and James uses this as an if-then statement. It's a, it's a general example that can apply to any and every church in any and every age. So if these visitors come in, the test is how do you handle that? How do you handle dealing with people that you don't know? What are you looking at when you see them? And there's two examples. First example is Mr. Goldfinger. He comes in and he's got gold rings on his hands. He's got fine clothes. In the Roman era, they would wear many rings on their left hand and they would be, there would be a multitude of rings as they, as they flaunted and they, they showed off their wealth and their status. In fact, in Rome, they've, they've found these shops from an archaeological standpoint, where you could go, if you had a special dinner or a special event, you could go and rent rings. You could hire rings to make yourself look more wealthy, give yourself more status. So that, that practice spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so even a picture, even into Israel itself, where wealthy Jews that were coming into their assembly, because remember this is primarily a Jewish church at this time, and they're wearing a multitude of gold rings. You got Mr. Goldfinger. This practice even continued later in Clement of Alexandria, even a couple hundred years later, warned Christians against this ostentation. He instructed believers to, to wear only one ring. Modesty in your clothing, in your apparel. But not only does Mr. Goldfinger come in and he has his gold, but he's got shiny garments or it says fine clothes. The word here has to do with bright, radiant clothing, clean and beautiful. Has the idea of uh, the word here is actually used to describe angels' garments later on in Scripture. And it describes the, the word is used to describe the garment that was given to Jesus when the soldiers were mocking him. A bright, a shiny garment. But look at what they do. He comes in, and they, verse 3, and they pay special attention to him. They look closely. He walks in, and the, the eyes of the congregation follow him. They're looking at him. They're, they're awed by his wealth. Because you got to remember, for the Jewish context, they were poor. If you became a Christian, it costed you something. You were, you were excommunicated from the, the fellowship of Israel. You couldn't do sacrifices at the temple. People would boycott your businesses. Wives would be kicked out of their homes by their husbands. Right? There, was, there was a cost to following Christ. And so here they are. The, these are a majority poor congregation. There may have been a few rich people. But here comes a wealthy man visiting their assembly. He's come to hear the, the preaching of the Word of God. And they're looking at him, they're eyeing him, and their eyes are fixed, and they're, they're awed. They want, they want to be thought well of. They see him, and what do they say? Well, someone in particular says, hey, why don't you sit over here in the, in the good place? 
Now, in those early assemblies, if they arranged it like the synagogue, it was mostly sitting room only on the floor, or you would stand. There would be a few benches that in the synagogue you would pay money to reserve. Now, if they're following that pattern, or, and even if, even if it's in a home, there would have been very few real seats. Most people would have sat, there would have been an open courtyard in a big home, and there would have been people sitting on, on the floor, cross-legged, or standing on the walls and just watching. There would have been a few, few good seats. And what do they do? Well, they, as a congregation, it says they, they have a cordial attitude toward him. They say, look, come over here and sit in this good place. No, no, don't sit on the floor with the rest of us. Sit over here in this good seat. I read a story in 1818, a future U.S. president, Andrew Jackson, was visiting a church in Tennessee. He was still a general at that time and was a famous preacher named Cartwright, who was a guest preacher at this particular church, and he wanted to hear him. So he, he came in a little bit later, and he stood at the back, and he was content with that. And the, the church's regular pastor, who was seated on the platform behind the guest speaker, Mr. Cartwright, he saw General Jackson, and he kind of got up, and he leaned up, and he started tugging at Cartwright's, uh, Cartwright's coat, and he said, it's Mr. Jackson, there's General Jackson, there's General Jackson. Cartwright, disturbed over that interruption and the blatant double standard of the preacher, said out loud for all to hear, Who is General Jackson? If his soul is not converted, God will damn him to hell just like any other man. Brother, may we be as bold and may we be as impartial. But we also see another example. We see an example, James says, look, not only is the the bad example for the rich man, but there's an example of the poor man. He said, if you you see the poor man and he comes in and he's wearing dirty clothes, they're shabby, they're worn. Maybe he's cleaned them up as best he can, but he's come in and it's, it's his clothes, the only set of clothes he has. He's a tradie, he's a laborer. And what do they do? What do you notice? They don't pay any special attention to him. They barely, it doesn't even say they even looked at him. He just comes in. And whoever the, the, the person that is in charge of seating, most likely a deacon, he looks at him and he says, and you can kind of read the indifference. You sit here, or, or sorry, you stand there, or you sit down by my footstool. He's indifferent to his feelings. He doesn't care. He says, stand over there somewhere. Stand in the back. You just kind of over there out of the way. Or even worse, he says, sit on the floor by my footstool. Here is whoever is speaking has a seat. And then they have their feet propped up on a, on a footstool. And they don't even offer the poor man to, for their footstool. They say, you go sit on the floor over there. What a, what a degrading experience for the poor man. What a mockery of Christ's love for others. Heard a story about a man who was miserly with his money and he would be careful with every dollar that he had. He was dressed very raggedly and, and many that saw him and, and got to know him a little bit, they would, they would make fun of him behind his back about his, about his miserly ways. But that was until they found out his wife was an invalid and his son was very sick. 
And they realized that he was using every penny to pay for medical care for his family. Once they found that, it changed their view of him and their mocking ceased. James gives us a picture of favoritism. And it's a picture where people in the church are, are focused in on the externals. And this is a situation that's played out in many churches and has played out in many churches around this country and around this world. Right? This is an issue, brethren, of your heart towards others. You say you love someone. This is where the rubber meets the road. Do you love someone who is different than you? Not in your same social group, financial status, ethnic circles. Where is your heart? Do you look at people based off of superficial aspects of their life? I have a friend that told me about his church, and it's a church in the U.S., and it's a, it's a Chinese church, primary Chinese ethnicity. And there's an issue that he's dealing with where their younger families, younger Chinese families that are coming into the church, and the older families are discriminating against these families because they no longer speak Chinese. They lived in the U.S. so long they've, they've assimilated. Right? And their, their discrimination or discrimination and the favoritism from the older couples, it's not based on anything but language. You can see this partiality even in Christians and even in evangelism. Right? Do you, who do you choose to evangelize? Who do you choose to talk to? Are you willing to talk with anybody? In the U.S., there's whole church planning movements. These are terrible, but these models that they, they teach churches that you should go towards a target audience. This focused group approach where you go towards, maybe you want young couples in your church, and you, you just focus strictly on young couples. Let everyone else evangelize all the other groups. We're going to focus on young couples because we want to grow our church. We want to be a young, vibrant church. You see, partiality is a sin. It dishonors God by dishonoring others. Christ did not show that impartiality, so why are you? That's what James is asking his readers. Brethren, don't be a man-fearer. Right? We fear man, we, we worried what others are going to think, or we want them to think well of us. Just because they're rich, they're powerful. Be careful of your pride. It's a danger. You elevate yourself. Well, not only has James given us that example, but it gives us the correct evaluation. What, what favoritism really is. Look down in verse 4. He says, Have you not made distinctions? among yourselves, and become judges with evil motives. So this is the, this is the then. He says, if, and then this is the then, then, and the, the expected answer, he, he expects them to say, when he says, have you not made distinctions, he wants them to say, yes, we have. We're guilty. And these distinctions, have, they've divided people up into groups, rich and poor, it's the same word that's used in verse 6 of chapter 1 that he says, doubting. It's a double-mindedness, a, a double focus. You have God's standard and you have sinful evaluations of people. 
You have internal divisions, even in their own attitudes, in their minds. Because Christ wants you to have a perfect attitude. He wants you to have a, a mature. Right? We can't be perfect in the sense of, of totally complete, but we can have a mature attitude. That's what James is talking about in verse 4, verse 1. The perfect result is, is maturity. He wants you to have a mature attitude to treat others with, with dignity. They're created by God. They need the gospel. We want you to honor them. We, we show honor to who and when it's due, to, to those who are seasoned citizens, to leaders, to rulers. But we still know that they need the gospel. We respect, we esteem those who work hard for the gospel. We give them the, the respect and honor they deserve. But this attitude is an attitude knowing that we are all in union with Christ and there's no longer any distinctions. Colossians 3, 10 and 11, Paul speaks about our new identity. It's who we are. Right? We're no longer, as I said before, no longer Americans, or we're no longer Aussies, we're no longer Aborigine, we're no longer Canadians, we're no longer Indians. It doesn't matter. We're, we're all part of the body of Christ. It's a new identity. In the United States, on our coins, we have e pluribus unum, on the coinage. It means in Latin, out of the many, one. Out of the many cultures, you make one nation. Well, that, that motto could apply to us as the church as well. Out of the, out of the many, we have one body. Look, there are an old, a lot of old church buildings in the American South where I grew up. And a lot of these old church buildings have, have balconies. And these balconies are a testimony, a witness to an age of discrimination. When blacks in the South were, were segregated from the whites and they had to sit in a balcony apart from other members of Christ based on ethnicity and skin color. What a terrible sin of partiality. James says that if you look merely at externals, then you are guilty of making sinful distinctions that God does not make. He is a God of impartiality and His dealings with man, and He expects every man and woman to humble themselves and treat others with the same impartiality, both rich and both poor alike. And He says, you've made these distinctions, and what does He say? What do you become? You become an evil judge, right? What a condemnation. As you look at others, you're an evil judge, can you think of anything worse than an evil judge? You've been convicted, or sorry, you've been, you've been accused of a crime, and you go into a courtroom. Don't you want that judge to be what? Impartial. You want him to hear the full weight of the evidence, not just the superficial things. You want him to, to dig at the root of what's really going on in that case. You want him to adjudicate properly and justly. But James says you've, you've determined who a person is by their externals, that you've become an evil, a vicious, injurious, destructive judge. You've shown partiality to, to those in the body or those visitors and those that, that come in. You're, you're, you're showing that you have a partial heart. You're showing the sinfulness in your heart. You're focusing on the, the attractiveness of others instead of the glory of Christ. You're an evil judge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 
Paul speaks of this with the Corinthians. Now, one thing about the Corinthians is they were arrogant, they were prideful, they were boastful. Paul says, says, says this excuse me, over and over in 1 Corinthians. This is a church with a lot of bad things going on. And Paul's writing 1 Corinthians to, to help correct those things, to get them back on the right track. But one of the things they were doing is, is they were questioning Paul's motives. They were questioning his message. They were questioning his ministry. And they were comparing him to others like Peter and Apollos. And he divided themselves into groups in the church. Factions based off of preaching styles. Right When they all preached the same message... Same gospel, they preached the same Lord, but they divided themselves up based on preachers. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, It's a very small thing for me to be examined by you or any human court. They're examining him. The, the, the idea is trying to bring a, 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 an accuse him, like, a, like an accuser would bring someone to trial. And he says, I'm conscious of nothing about, against myself, but ultimately God is the one who examines me in 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And in 4.5, he says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment. But when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from God. He admonishes them, look, stop this sinful judging. You're looking at me off of superficial factors. You don't know what's in my heart. Stop dividing yourself over something as as superficial as preaching styles or the way a preacher looks. And that's the thing about Apostle Paul is he he wasn't very stately. He didn't speak very well. He admitted this himself in 1 Corinthians. And you think about all the beatings, the hunger... The hard times he experienced for for the gospel. And he he probably wasn't a good-looking guy at all. Scars, most likely. See, they were focused on externals. And so when we become... When we we judge others, when we show a discrimination and a partiality and a, a favoritism, we become evil judges. What a condemnation. The correct evaluation of of favoritism, James says, it's discrimination, it's evil, it's sinful. Look, I heard a story about a tradie who visited a beautiful church in the heart of a city. He enjoyed the service and afterwards he went up to the pastor about joining the church. The pastor looked at him and looked at what he was wearing and, and thought, well, I don't know if he'll fit in very well and with our church, full of high society, doctors, lawyers, wealthy. And he told the guy, he said, hey, why don't you go and pray for this situation or pray about this situation for a couple weeks and then come back and let me know what, what you've decided. Well, a couple weeks later, the, the pastor saw the man and he said, hey, uh, so what's, what's your decision? And the guy said, well, I've been praying about this and God has told me that he's been trying to get in this church for 20 years. And so I just better get up and go somewhere else. Look, brethren, the church of God is not a social club. Right? We don't come together to, to network. We come together as the body of Christ to worship, to serve one another. 
We have to be careful that we don't adopt a worldly uh, mindset, a sinful mindset in our attitude towards each other and towards those in the, in the world. After all, we are saved by God's grace. It's not of ourselves. It's not of our works. Lest we would be able to boast in ourselves. But instead we boast in what God has done for us. Look, the genuine doer is the person of faith. He demonstrates a a changed heart by his love for others. Especially those that are different. I had a conversation a few years ago with a youth director back in Southern California. And in this conversation, I asked him about his work as, with the youth. And, and then I asked him, um, he made a comment. And I said, well, well, tell me about your church's philosophy of ministry. What's the, the governing principles? What's the focus of, of the church? And this was a large church of, of many thousands. And he said that they had geared their whole church, everything from the the coffee kiosk out in the foyer to the home groups to the child care, everything was geared towards reaching young couples. I was taken aback and I said, well, what about singles or what about the elderly or what about couples that don't have kids? I mean, what, what, what what are you doing to reach them? And he said, well, kind of confused at me, like, why would I even ask that question? And he said, well, we, we have an ADM service that is more traditional, and, and they're welcome to come to that service. Brethren, this is a, a modern variation of the same thing that James has issued this warning, right? Cliques, discrimination, favoritism, partiality, they're all the same. The body of Christ is to be inclusive to all who believe. And this is James's warning. He wants the world to see the church and to see something that is different. To see that the gospel really has power to overcome the divisions that exist in the world. The animosity, the hatred that exists between groups. You go into the church and, and if, if, it's a, if it's a true church that has this attitude, you'll see... What? You'll see different ethnicities, groups that hate each other, Jews, Arabs. You'll see Indians, Pakistani. You'll you'll see groups that that, that hate each other, worshiping together in one Lord in one body. What a power that is to the world to see how God transforms people's lives. I wrote a paper in college. I was in a, in a secular uni, and, and in that uni class, they, they asked us to write on any topic. Of, and I wrote about how the only answer to racism is Jesus Christ. And the professor, who was an unbeliever, he wrote back, he made a little comment, and he, which he gave me a good grade on the paper, but he said, how does this work practically as we're living in the South and you see all these ethnic churches. Brethren, God doesn't honor these ethnic churches. The desire is that we would all be together regardless of our ethnicity, our social status. Brethren, I ask you to examine your hearts. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of partiality or favoritism? Do you look at others and have you been focusing in on externals and what they can do for you? Because love is sacrificial. It doesn't care about those things. 
Christ was impartial. Are you impartial? Or have you become an evil judge, setting yourself up on a pedestal and looking down at others? Brethren, it's a divisive evil. And James writes here because he wants to squash it. He wants to challenge it to be rid of it. Brethren, I just say that if, if you are guilty, confess, repent. Work to love others is more important than yourself. Look, the genuine believer knows that a Christ-like love is incompatible with favoritism. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it challenges our hearts in areas that we don't often consider. Father, search our hearts and help us to see if we've been partial, that if we've been showing favoritism, if we've been looking at others purely from an external perspective, do we see our fellow brethren as opportunities for service? Do we see others in the world as opportunities for the gospel, regardless of ethnicity, culture, social status, or wealth? Father, help us to demonstrate a true Christ-like love to each other. Help the world to see New Community Church as an example of, of how the gospel has the power to overcome natural divisions. Help us to glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.